Hey everybody, welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We are your hosts, Sean and Aaron. This is Sean. That one's Sean. This one is Aaron. I like to refer to myself as this one. This voice. I would prefer to call you that one. I'm this one. <laughs> Don't try to pick no, a fight. I'm, I'm, this just, one. I'm just saying that's how it works in my head. I am I and you are you. No, wait. You got that backwards. No, no, no. <laughs> That's not how this works. You're telling me that you are I? That's laughable. I am I. Get it straight. None of this sits right with me, but in the interest of keeping things civil, let's move on. Yeah, let's turn the safety back off on both of our revolvers. Like a pretty tense there. (laughs) These disagreements about language, they can get real. So today on the show, we're talking about Library socialism as a set of ideas that we explored in detail in a multi-part episode, the Library Socialism Trilogy. Today we're taking questions. We've been running a contact form where people can ask us questions about library socialism. Links in the description, by the way, if you want to ask a question in the future. Because that back and forth discourse style development of politics, I feel like is a very fruitful way to be challenged to think about things differently and not just to fall into the same language and framing and explanations that you're used to falling into. Yeah. I've been looking forward to getting back to talking about this for a while. And I think getting questions is really useful for stimulating thought and also for just seeing like what people who've listened to what we said about it currently have questions about. It's just, yeah, it's a good way to orient conversations. So the basic proposal of library socialism is that we can have a society that is organized around commonly held goods. The entire society turned into a library as the alternative to the entire society turned to a marketplace, which is society we've currently inherited. So we want to sort of pull on the influence of the lending library, the way that things are shared, the way that abundance is created through the process of pro-social interaction, through sharing, it actually creates more access to a good life for people and simultaneously has an ecological impact because you can produce less things to provide more luxuries to more people. Yeah, I think talking about libraries is a really useful, intuitive way to get people thinking about what an alternate property system could be like. So everyone understands how property works currently in this current society, because we live in this society. And when you start talking about the commons or commonly held property, or how could we manage a system where not everyone just always hoards all their own items all the time, but we have a social system of sharing useful items between us. How would that work? How could anyone possibly do that? It's a really useful thing to have this answer just laying there already. The library, an institution that people already know how it works and know how they interact with it or how they can interact with it. A system that exists of managing commonly held books and other resources, but mostly books in current society to lend them out, to give access to the items to as many people as possible, while having a sort of institutional framework that exists to maintain those items and to curate and to make them available to people. So yeah, with Library of Socialism, we want to propose an alternative new common sense, one that says that we can provide people with a higher standard of living than they ever have had in history before, while still living within ecological means through using the logic of the library, the influence of the library to shape the direction of society. 
And three big philosophical ideas that fit into this framework are usufruct, which is the fruitful usefulness of property that you have a right to while you're using it, but is otherwise shared. There's the irreducible minimum, which is the basic level that no one should fall below, whether that's food, housing, healthcare, and so on. And there is complementarity, which is an ethical framework, which sees difference as something that is not hierarchical, but is rather creates a generative wholeness. So that's an ethical framework, but it also has political implications, namely democracy, a social, ecological, direct democracy. So yeah, I think that's a good quick summary of library socialism and what it's about. Yeah. If you're still confused, you can either go back and listen to the trilogy or you can keep listening to this. It'll probably explain some things too. If you have any questions, we've got a question form linked in the description of this episode that you can just ask us the question directly. And know what? Even if you haven't listened, don't feel like you have to listen to all these episodes in order to have the right to ask a question. Absolutely. All right, let's go to the old question bag. And it's got a big question mark on it and we wrestle around in it. And right, we won't do yeah. the sound effects. We will just imagine it. But you can imagine being made of any material that you want, ASMR. So here's a question we received. Similar to the portion on the French Revolutionary calendar, how would holidays change in library socialist society? I'm very interested in pagan holidays and non-denominational celebrations of human compassion. Right. So for those of you who don't know, during the French Revolution, they created an all-new calendar with all-new holidays. It's an interesting thing. We have an episode on it, or you can find the story elsewhere. But I think it's an interesting question how holidays will work in a library socialist society. One thought I have on it is that I think there will be a lot more different observances, or I don't even know if I want to use the holiday term, because holiday to me, I associate it with a holiday off of my wage job or my work, like going on holiday from the work I have to do. And there might be some aspect of that, but I think in the future, observances of like yearly events or, you know, it could be religious holidays or it could even be things like we have a lot of observances now year round of like Black History Month or Pride Month or this is the time of year where we remember this particular historical figure. I think there's going to be a lot of different opportunities to find observances, remembrances, things to celebrate. And it'll kind of be regional, cultural, and personal, which observances, which things you choose to celebrate. Because I feel like there's so many, they could just be happening all year round. And yeah, maybe they'll still be called holidays, but in terms of like which ones would officially give you days off work, I feel like that kind of becomes irrelevant in a society where work is more play-like, more voluntary, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think like thematically, holidays are observances that are consistent with library socialist ethics and politics would probably be themed around things like knowledge, the environment and natural world, community, sharing, joyfulness and mirth. Those all seem like natural. But I mean, there's a variety of different, not to limit it to that. You want to leave it up to people. Like we don't want to make a blueprint for here are the holidays our communist utopia will have this holiday then and this holiday then and so on. You'd also want to look at local histories. And I think that observances and holidays with decolonial influences or connections to histories that are regional are really cool and groovy. Yeah, I think it's consistent with the ethics of library socialism, which also has to do with the sort of cumulative human bounty of culture and 
knowledge that we've built up over generations that's all kind of stored in libraries and books i think when thinking about library socialist holidays we'd want to look at that same bounty of the history of human culture and draw from it whatever uh, is meaningful to the particular people who are living in a particular place or come from a particular cultural background and they you know Part of what libraries help us do is retain and reinvent the past. And I think that uh, holidays and observances can be a big part of that. So like the questioner mentioned pagan holidays, and I'm sure they wouldn't go away. There would probably be more time for people who are interested in celebrating those to be able to do that. When it comes to the labor point and when it comes to people having paid days off of work and thinking of this as sort of a transitionary thing, like if we wanted to pursue library socialism through holiday legislation in the current day, I think paid holidays are fucking really cool and that we could easily bear, I don't know how many we have in Canada, like 10 or something like that. Whatever amount we have, we could easily double it and I would still get all my work done. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) I think also it's great to have something that I'm disappointed that we don't have is, and I know it varies from country to country, and I'm really sorry to people who don't get even as paltry paid holidays as we do in Canada. I don't mean to, you Americans. Know, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to like parade it around in front of you that your country's horrible because our country's horrible too, but <laughs> I'm disappointed that there isn't a run of like say four or five holidays in a row, like a hollow week. That's an innovation I want to see. I think that asking for a hollow week is a library socialist kind of reform because leisure is good, especially if it was themed around knowledge, information, visiting the library. That would be killer. That'd be an amazing foothold for the revolution if we could convince our government to give us a paid week off work to read books. Yeah. No, I would love a week off for reading or for any other type of hollow week, maybe multiple per year. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, it could just technically be for reading and, you know, you can do whatever you want, but formally. Yeah, there's no enforced, enforced reading, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. So the government agent shows up to your house and it's like, which one have you been meaning to read the longest? (laughs) Or there's specific books everyone has to read. There's like a mandatory global book club (laughs) during this week. You have to give your thoughts. Book reports do. No, that's not a holiday, but... (laughs) (laughs) welcome to keyboard warrior radio theater happy dynamism day everybody i'm so happy to be celebrating the most important holiday in the library socialist calendar it is really at the core of what library socialism means and i think that Uh, If you don't understand the importance of Dynamism Day, you are less of a library socialist than I am. Boo, Dynamism Day sucks. What, we're supposed to be celebrating and honoring dynamism? It's a joke. We've got so many great holidays in our society. There's Contingency Day, there's Ceasefire Day, Interdependence Day, but we all know the real best holiday is Library Week. And you get a week off to catch up on the reading that you've been meaning to do in the last year. Whew. And you, you're dishonoring, I think, our great society by focusing on something so small and useless as a holiday as Dynamism Day. I think Dynamism Day should be abolished. 
typical Library Week defender. Library Week is the most boring, basic, mid-holiday of the Library Socialist Society. And Contingency Day? Don't even get me started on that. It's celebrating contingency when you have dynamism to celebrate. It's absolutely ridiculous. And as far as abolishing Dynamism Day, in one way, I almost appreciate it because it's such a dynamic suggestion, but it's also a horrible suggestion, and I would work diligently to stop it. And I can't believe you listed all those holidays without even listing the weekend for celebration of pools and public swimming, the second best holiday on the calendar. Yeah, obviously I like swimming weekend, but it's not like a holiday holiday. It doesn't have, like, decorations. Says you. I have tons of celebration of pool decorations. I mean, if we're going to extend the day thing that far, then I'd say probably one of my favorite days is the day when we bring everything out to parks and lawns to just swap stuff that we've already taken out from the library all at once. You know, talking to neighbors and stuff. It's not really like a holiday holiday. You know, we just call it that day we do that. And it's, it doesn't have the decorations. If we're going with decorations, I'm with Library Week. Maybe Interdependence Day. Excuse me, if you go to the Society Wiki under Holidays, the weekend for the celebration of pools and public swimming is on the list. So it is a holiday, and I won't have you downplaying it. And furthermore, the decorations for Library Week, like Library Week itself, are mid. But I will say, in the interest of forging at least some kind of bond here, you know, they say even a fool is right on occasion. You are correct that Interdependence Day is a pretty good holiday. It's in the top 10, at least. Well, thank you. I appreciate that civility. It takes a big person to admit when they're wrong. And I'll graciously take that. And I wouldn't go further to say I've been right about everything generally, but as usual, undervalued. I'm undervalued. That doesn't make me resentful because I'm guided by the light of the truth. So thank you for saying that. Well, one thing I didn't say was that I was wrong about anything because I wasn't. It's rude to insult people for their reading comprehension, so I won't do it. But I will say, while I don't want to psychoanalyze people on social media, I think that's wrong. I think it's a good idea for you to talk to your therapist about uh, that projection issue just getting some skills for learning how to cope better with being so incorrect all the time. Because, I mean, you're coping, but you're not coping very well. I'm going to disagree with you there. I'm coping perfectly well. That is a cope, but not a good one. Your coping about my coping right now is sub-cope quality. Like, I'm an expert coper. When I cope, I cope, and I cope well. And when I need to cope, I do. I'm not afraid of that. But you need to cope, and you're not coping. You're refusing to cope. Oh, I'm coping. I'm coping so well right now, so hard, so beautifully. My therapist compliments me every day on how well I'm coping. Well, my therapist told me that when I'm talking to someone like you online and they're not coping, that I need to have the confidence to share my opinion instead of I have a tendency to be a, someone who rolls over a bit too easily. And I've talked to my therapist about this and they've encouraged me to approach these conflicts when appropriate. I think this is that time you're not coping. You need to. My therapist told me that when one, I'm talking to someone online who's having cognitive distortions and who's obviously lying to their therapist and getting bad advice from their therapist, that I should tell them that they need to show the logs to their therapist so they can get a reality check. So I hope you do that. 
my therapist was telling me that often people who aren't coping are making up stories about their therapists uh, where they're heroes and their therapist always backs up everything that they say. But a good therapist will actually challenge their patient a little bit. And that's actually what they were doing to me at the time, because I was saying that wasn't true. And then they said this. They were actually challenging me by saying this, because I was actually saying it was good for them to not challenge. So it actually kind of applies to your situation, but it's lucky that me and my therapist had that conversation because otherwise I wouldn't have anything to say to you necessarily, but now I do. That is the biggest self-report. I can't believe you made up your therapist just to try and win an argument with me. That's something I would discuss with your new therapist when you actually get one. Uh, but for now, I'm gonna have to ask you to please get off my page. Well, I will definitely be discussing this with my current therapist, who I continue to see and have been seeing. I've made great progress, but thank you. And I wish the same to you. I hope that all the progress to you, because you clearly need it. Good day to you, and happy Dynamism Day. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. I think uh, move on to the next question. This is a question from Orga. It says, who or what would decide what types of goods get produced in a library socialist society? What drives innovation? Making sure new products and products that are actually better made and better for people get created. How are workers, designers, etc., that make the things and provide services compensated for or incentivized to keep working and producing things? Is it just a wish to contribute to society? Will it all be automated? Or will there still be a meaningful currency, maybe just for services, while goods are freely lendable by using Usufructian principles? That is a great question. There's kind of an uneven board when it comes to argumentation. If you're going to advocate for like an entirely new society, you're faced with questions that are really complex, that even to describe how this all works in the current system, to actually accurately describe it would be really, really complicated. And that's something that actually exists. So then to try to describe with an accurate level of detail, a hypothetical system built on a political, material, social context that we can only just barely imagine, that we could theorize, but it's, it's hard to reach that level of specificity for the world as it actually is. And it's even harder still to do one built on some hypothetical future contingencies and so on. But because we are proposing that we transition society from one society to the next, it is fair that we would be asked to try to explain this sort of thing. It is a very big ask to transform society. It is a very small ask comparatively to continue with society as things are currently going in terms of what it would take. There was a bunch of smaller sub-questions in there. Maybe we can approach each one of those one at a time. So it says... Who decides what types of goods get produced in a library socialist society? Uh, there's kind of two things I would say to this. One of them is the broader principles-based answer of, well, we would want to decide what to produce based on making sure that everybody has an irreducible minimum of everything they need, gets their needs met. So, you know, what do we produce? We produce more than enough food for everybody slightly more. You don't want to have a whole bunch of food waste, but make sure there's enough, more than enough clothes, more than enough beds, more than enough homes, et cetera, et cetera. You want to have enough so that 
everyone gets everything they need. That's like a broad answer, but it's also kind of maybe a dodgy answer because it's kind of obvious in a sense everyone, every society wants, at least in theory, to produce enough of everything to everyone. And it doesn't get to the answer of, okay, but specifically, what kind of beds do we produce? What are the beds made out of? How big are they? What different types of deodorant are they? Like all those really specific questions of who's going to produce what exactly and in what variation and what type. And getting into that, I would first want to talk about democratic control of the means of production, I guess is one way you could put it. Democracy, complementarity is part of library socialism, and also the idea of local people making decisions for themselves. And I think in terms of the hyper-specific questions about what to produce and how to produce it beyond just everybody needs clothes, everybody needs leisure, etc. That would mostly be left up to the people who are actually doing the producing in kind of democratic conversation with the people who are consuming, using the items. And I think there's also principles to talk about there in terms of we'd want to build the bed out of the best materials that we have available that will last the longest, but also make the lowest ecological impact. I think there's a lot of different engineering concerns you can put into deciding what to produce and how to produce it, mixed with when there's different options available, asking the for lack of a better term, stakeholders in the situation about what they would rather do. How would you rather produce this? What types of things would you rather have produced in your community? So all the people who kind of should have a say in these things do have a say. And keeping it, again, strictly within the material limits of what's ecologically sustainable. Under the current system, there is kind of a conversation between the private owners of factories or other production facilities and the people in the marketplace, their buying decisions, what the data shows getting sold versus not, but also in conversation with regulators, which are appointed following laws that are drafted by elected officials. So yeah, under the current system, the answer to this question who decides what type of goods get produced in the current society, that is sort of the complex context in which that question is really answered. There is no single identifiable group that decides entirely what to produce. Firms have kind of the final say, according to guidelines set up by political bodies, in conversations with data-based analysis and profit-based analysis with consumers. A library socialist society would be at least that complicated, but probably more complicated as you have principles and guidelines set up through bottom-up confederated democratic bodies. You have workplace democracy, which is making the final decisions the way that the firm does when it comes to production in certain contexts. And it could be in conversation with consumers using other means of measuring consumer preferences for example, how much things are taken out from libraries is an obvious parallel. But then also you could give the users of things an explicit actual voice in production if they so want to use that voice. Yeah, kind of like voting with your dollar, except instead of with your dollar, it's, it's a just vote. a vote. Yeah. <laughs> We're turning voting with your dollar on its head, man. Um. <laughs> voting with your vote. With the principles of library socialism, we want that to be ecological. We'd want it to be something that could last a long time, that could be shared without breaking down. 
modular, easily repairable. Yeah, and we'd want the user experience of participating in these processes to be as seamless and effortless. Like consumer democracy should be a seamless and effortless part of the user experience of library socialist citizenhood or personhood. Yeah, kind of like answering those forms about like, how did you like this product? Or like reviewing something on Amazon, except it's actually, again, a vote that actually will affect the production down the line. I suspect we can probably even do better than forms or ballots I think there's means of, we'll have to talk about this more in detail later, but I think there's a variety of means that you can compile public opinion in ways that are painless, seamless, joyful, where people's voice actually matters. I believe that if people's voice actually matters, they will speak to you. They will want to speak to you for a long time if their voice is being registered and it matters. Maybe not everything they say they want to happen comes true, but if they can see they're part of a process where their input matters, I think a lot of people are really, really hungry for that. And not getting that in their lives, people not getting opportunities in their lives to say things that matter, I think it's one of the ghoulish sad things about our society. I think it's one of the things that makes people try to grip onto whatever little social power they can get and lash out at strangers in public and stuff like that. It's partially just from not having a fair system to participate in and to be part of a world where what they say matters so little so much of the time. But we will talk more about democracy someday soon. Yeah. So next part of it would be what drives innovation, what makes sure new products are made are actually better for people are being created. How do we drive material progress forward? And I feel like my first answer to this question is that people like doing these things. Yeah, like innovating is problem solving. People have been getting a joy out of trying to solve technical problems for you know, at least 100,000 years, but probably in the territory of a million years, like pre-humans have been trying to solve problems and getting a joy out of successfully finding the solution to them. Yeah, yeah. And if you think about it, in the current society, you'd say like, oh, what drives innovation currently is money accumulating wealth. But I don't know if that's necessarily true either. I feel like a lot of innovation comes from people who at least initially, don't have a lot of wealth, even if they end up becoming wealthy because they created something that became very popular. Or a lot of the time, they don't become wealthy, but the person they work for becomes wealthy because their ideas are owned by the person that they're currently working for. And they just got their sort of regular wage. I think the idea that money drives people to design new things is kind of true sometimes, but people who are really just out there looking for wealth as their main drive are probably going to gravitate more towards things like finance, the world of trading stocks and financial instruments, kind of getting Flipping involved properties. in- properties. Yes. Investing, exactly. That kind of thing. And All like the cheat code back of the door, economic, <laughs> economic exploits that people use to become wealthy. Yeah, and there's a lot of problems with the sole entrepreneur narratives we have in society. But even if you're looking at that type of thing, what made Steve Jobs want to invent Apple computers rather than just become a finance guy? It was probably because he thought it was really fun and cool to like... I'm not even sure what his role was or how much he invented compared to other things. I don't know. I think the... he was the boss getting the credit for all the people right, doing right, the real right. work. <laughs> he had the big idea or whatever. What if a computer was blue? <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, Steve. 
You did it. (laughs) Yeah, I think my honest gut is that I feel like that's enough and that's all we need. But for people who don't agree with that or think it's not a good enough answer, I think there are also other answers. Like one is that if you solve a problem that's facing society with a new technical design of some kind, a new item, a new product, I guess, for lack of a better term, you're going to get social recognition for that. And if there's one thing I know about most people, it's that they like social recognition, esteem of others to be Mm -hmm. recognized for doing something well and for helping other people. If just the helping other people part, you think, oh, that won't be enough. Getting all those brownie points and belly rubs for helping other people, I think is going to be a big motivator for people. And if that's not even enough, I think various types of point systems could be, you know, people can collect bonus points, get extra special treats, or if there's certain items that are need to be rationed out because we've figured out sustainably on the globe, we can only have 20 yachts at a time and you have to book them with other people. You stay on the yacht with other people. There's a five-year waiting list. Maybe if you invent something really great, we can bump you up a year or two or I feel like there's little like treats and rewards and things we could, if we really want an extrinsic motivation, these intrinsic motivations won't be enough. I think there's a lot of things we could design to do that. Maybe even up to and including some form of currency or money. I said bonus points, which is basically a currency at that point, a fiat point-based currency. Yeah, there's some reason to think that the extrinsic motivation is potentially detrimental or not needed. There's that study where they would give kids a star for reading or coloring or something like that. And then when they stopped giving the kids the stars, they stopped doing the thing, even though they were self-motivated to do it before. I can't remember the details. But it matches my experience a bit of feeling changes in external extrinsic motivations, making it harder or less desirable to do work. Seems real to me. Yeah, I feel like once you start getting the points, yeah, the I forget all the research on this, but the analysis of the research that I remember is that the extrinsic points or money or gold stars or whatever kind of start replacing intrinsic reward you had beforehand. So then if you get like less bonus points next time, it kind of kills your motivation to keep going or it kind of swaps out the end goal for just more points, which is sort of a hollow endpoint compared to the joy of solving a problem, the joy of helping people, and the joy of being esteemed and recognized for your contributions to society. And as for the question of how do you make sure that new products are actually better for people, like how do you make sure that products do what they're supposed to, my suggestion would be that you work your way up a scale of different sized tests of things like You have a principle, an idea of like how to make a bed for less environmental impact that's going to have longer longevity. So then you try making one or two of those, you test them out, see how people react to them, make changes based on it, and then scale up availability and so on in a proportionate way, testing through both production and consumers, testing for impact and so on. Yeah, I think there's a mixture of factors that can be measured explicitly, like how long does this last, et cetera, and then like more implicit measures of how good is this bed? Is this one more comfy or is that one more comfy? And like deciding on exactly how to weigh those between them would be, again, part of the democratic process, probably limited by 
regulations that have been democratically agreed on to like, okay, you can have some variance in how ecological these sofas are, but they can't go below these certain standards that we've set. If there's a really comfy sofa that's slightly less ecologically good or lasts slightly less long than this other thing, maybe we can allow that if it's within what's feasible and sustainable. So democratically controlled factories are making decisions with the democratic input of consumers on one hand, non-purchasing behavior data is being sent to the the democratic production facilities, and it'll be regulated according to the political agendas of general political body, a confederated system of workplace and neighborhood councils. But it might not be exactly like that. And there's a bunch of variations that you could add to that. And you could split that up even further. And maybe each of those things would actually be multiple things. Maybe you have a layer around technical expertise, like a you know the old adage, measure twice, cut once. Maybe you add an extra layers of measurement to make sure that you have the best possible outcome. And that could slow things down a bit sometimes. In certain areas, that could mean a longer process for things, but a very deliberate, ecological, socially responsible process. Yeah. And then the final part, how are workers, designers, etc., compensated, incentivized to keep working and producing things for libraries? Is it just a wish to contribute? Will it all be automated? Will there be a meaningful currency, et cetera? I feel like we've kind of verged into answering this, but there are aspects of it that I think are different. Like being a worker who helps produce items on like a factory floor is a different type of motivation to keep going, I think, than to innovate a new idea to be a designer. It's not entirely different, but I feel like it's slightly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, how are you going to make people work without threatening to starve them? That's actually a fair question. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because our system uses threatening to starve people as the means to make them work. And it appears that works pretty well. It's been working well enough to not completely collapse society for quite a while. So, you know, it's an answer to that question. I think that just a wish to contribute, will it all be automated? A meaningful currency still exists in some form. The answer to that is probably yes for all of them, or with maybe more of a heavy on the maybe for the last part. But I think in this society, say it's already up and running and going, I think we'll have a general idea for how much stuff can be automated and we'll probably want to automate as many things as we sustainably, feasibly, ecologically can automate because eliminating drudgery is good. And I think we'll also just have a general understanding of how much work we need from people in order to keep things running. And if we live in a society where we kind of know there's going to be exceptions for different disabilities and different levels of how much people can participate in specific types of work, but there's probably ways that everybody can contribute in different areas to different extents. But if we know, like, say, in general, everybody needs to work at least 10 hours a week to keep things running, it's just a number I'm throwing out there, to kind of keep things running basically well, then there would be a combination of a lot of social pressure to do at least 10 hours a week of work. And maybe you save it all up and you do 40 hours of week of work in one week per month and you take the other three weeks off, you know, you could probably find different ways to 
dole that out or individually figure out the work schedule that works best for you. But if we kind of know how much we expect of everybody, we know from Eleanor Ostrom's principles of managing a commons that it's useful to monitor not only what's being produced, but how much people are contributing in order to maintain that level of engagement. And I think if we are monitoring how much work people do, if someone just is completely able to work, but just deciding not to for no reason, which I'm kind of skeptical that would happen very often. I feel like if people weren't contributing, there would probably be some other issue going on. Maybe a mental health issue, maybe some other thing that we could talk through and figure out. But for the most part, I think people would want to contribute. And especially knowing that everyone knows that you're not working your 10 hours of work a week, I think would be a pretty strong motivator. I could see a society working entirely on a reputation type system for that with a can-do culture. Imagining if all your basic needs are met and you can sort of do what you want all the time, technically, but then your friends or people that you like are like, oh, we're shoveling shit this weekend. Yeah, shoveling Get shit ins- is so bad, you only have to do five hours a week, and then they count it as 10. So, like, I just yeah, like we, to do that get, and get, get it all t- done. Time and a half at bathroom wiping. And yeah, we'll do it together. We'll pair up and we'll go clean some bathrooms, get our time and a half, and we can contribute to the community. Remember the community, the thing we're a part of that listens to us, that makes sure that all of our needs are met. That gives us a voice in all of our decisions. and Yeah, like I don't want to sound too utopian, but I really do think that if people feel taken care of, if they feel listened to, if they feel part of something, that the intrinsic motivation to contribute will be really huge and people will go beyond whatever minimums you set out for them. Yeah, I could see it getting to a place where the minimums maybe exist on paper, but people don't really think of them because... There's just so much contribution going on that the issue is never there's not enough people to do things. Yeah, and automation helps with that, proportionate automation. I think another thing that helps also with the innovation question earlier, but also this question is eccentrics. People who are individually eccentric will probably be very valuable to society if they can be connected to the things that bring them their eccentric joy. Right. And you have the person who literally just wants to work for 12 hours a day on project X, Y, or Z, and they're given the means to do so. And where like you have to force them to take vacations as a policy. (laughs) People who you have to like drag kicking and screaming from their desk working at the lighthouse because they really, really value helping ships not hit the shore and connecting with all the different... (laughs) And they just, they don't participate in the democracy at all. They don't do any, they're not part of any other facet of the society. They're like, I'm a lighthouse guy. I do it 16 hours a day, although they only let me record 12 hours. I have to lie about it. (laughs) They drag me kicking and screaming from this lighthouse three times a year for an attempted one month vacation that I'll leave partway through. I spend the time plotting on how to change society so I no longer am forced to take these vacations, but I've never been successful in those efforts. (laughs) No, I do genuinely think that if we unlock the power of eccentrics, we'll be a much more powerful society and cooperative, collaborative society. I think also the currency question, I want to underline it is a space of contingency and possibility. I always try to think of the currency-less option. I think the currency field is thought about a lot and sort of defaulted to. So I think the non-currency 
space is worthy of attention. And surely part of the goal of library socialism is to increase the space of non-currency life. More and more of life should be decommodified. Yeah, one of the big things that distinguishes libraries from every other institution in society we have right now, basically, most other institutions is the I mean, maybe you have to pay for a library card in some places, but after that, <laughs> there's no currency involved. You're just borrowing, receiving, yeah. Yeah, when it comes to the user experience, at least, and obviously they need to pay rent and buy books and et cetera, and, but they create a space that is decommodified. Yeah. If we think of expanding those types of spaces to larger and larger impacts in society over time, I can imagine a scenario where day-to-day life exists without commodification, without the transfer of money, but it works on some sort of back-end system of currencies being used for resource allocation or some sort of point system where it's some specialist job to work with the currency, which helps maintain some balances within the system or something like that. Yeah, or maybe even direct measurements of resources and how many we have. Leave it to the numbers people to figure out how that all works. (laughs) Maybe there's like points in different contexts that people get points and they can use those points to exchange for opportunities. I'm cautious about how that sort of thing could develop into black markets or there's a lot of possibilities there. But depending on what path we move towards library socialism, I could also see political lives that include some type of currency in some limited degree, that people use currency for certain things. The main thing that's important, I think, is that we move towards increasing the spheres of decommodified life and make it be an option for people, a sincere option to just like not use money and live a life without money where needs are always met. Yeah. All right. So the next question that we want to tackle is what is the relationship between library socialism and degrowth? So yeah, degrowth basically in a nutshell for people who aren't aware is the idea that Our society and economy prioritizes growth above other things, but we live on a finite planet. We've got too many resource throughputs. The focus on the economy is destroying the planet. And as a result, we need to actually stop growing at all costs and maybe even shrink the economy in certain ways, stop producing as many things and live in balance with what the planet Earth can actually sustain over a prolonged period of time. The whole structure of capitalist economies requires that companies not just make a profit every year, but continue making more profit every year, especially if you're a publicly traded company. Otherwise, you could lose investment, lose market value, market share, and kind of there's these intrinsic impulses to make more and more money. So to create more and more products, sell more and more things, use more and more of the Earth's resources. We only have one Earth. So we have to stop the focus on growth and move towards degrowth, which in general is something that I think I agree with and that I think is incorporated into library socialism. But at the same time, also acknowledging the sort of other side of this coin, which is the hyper-automated luxury society take on things, which I think a lot of people could see as the opposite of degrowth, the idea that we can just continue to produce an abundance, produce so much of everything that everyone has all the luxuries in the world that they could ever want. And we live in a 
not just a perfect society, but a perfect luxury candy land society. Yeah, that- we, we need to have proletarian luxury, that sort of fully automated luxury communism <laughs> idea that we should ensure that we're promising people a good life, that our political aim, when we're talking about creating a society that's more fair and more just, it needs to ensure that we're promising people the world, that we're promising people a much, much better life, which I think narratively has always really resonated with me. Like we don't want to be telling people that the future has to be worse in order to survive. We want to, if possible, argue that unless we change, things are going to get worse. But if we go this way, we can make things be better, even better than they are now. Yeah. And I think there's aspects to both of those that really work. But one of the really cool things about the library socialism idea is that we can have access to more things while producing less of it through sharing. So in a sense, there's an attempt there to sort of stick the landing and have both of those things. Use fewer resources to create more abundance of access to needs meeting items and experiences through this system of a commonly held bounty of social and productive goods. So yeah, library socialism, it's a luxury degrowth. It's post-scarcity achieved not necessarily by full automation, but sufficient automation. It's a proposal to live beyond the means of the vast majority of humans all throughout human history at a much lower ecological cost. And I think it's something that whether you're a diehard degrowthist or a diehard fully automated luxury communist, there's something that you can take with you here if you don't already have it, which is the capacity to push up the standards of living while decreasing resource throughputs, environmental destruction, and so on. The two are allegedly contradictory, but by using the social constructs of usufructian library society, you can achieve both at once. And I haven't seen fully automated luxury communists talk about this yet, but they will. But I have seen degrowthists talk about this. And actually, degrowth is one of the spheres that, as I've looked more into it since doing the Library Socialism trilogy, I've seen parallels and I've seen the co-development of some of these same ideas that we picked up from other places were pieced together also by some degrowthists. Uh, which I think is really cool, really groovy. Right. And yeah, there's definitely been post-scarcity theorists and movements and thinkers who've talked about the benefits of library-like systems to increase, to basically do this, to be more efficient, while at the same time providing more to people. So yeah, to the degree that we can determine that degrowth is materially correct about the limits of our environment and the alarms that they sound about the limits of our environment and the limits to our economic system's idea of growth as it relates to the planet, to the degree we can determine that is true, which from where I'm sitting, it appears they are correct, it must be integrated. It must be part of library socialism. Yeah, I think in terms of the basic critique of degrowth, that we can't use more resources than is sustainable, that's just obviously true. And I think... We're not going to destroy the planet to build libraries. That's not an ecological, directly democratic library society. Yeah, that's undermining your own system at the basis of... I just want like 15 really good years (laughs) of library society followed by apocalyptic destruction. Yeah, whatever. Who cares after that? As long as we build the perfect library society, who cares if it's sustainable into the future? 
just to get that one gleaming. It's like the millennials revenge when millennials are old enough to actually be running society the same way that the elderly political class right now created a situation where they could have this temporary utopia of abundance for themselves. Right. Millennials will do that where everyone will get a temporary abundance. They'll pat themselves on the back about it. But right after the millennials die, there'll be incredible (laughs) environmental destruction. The boiling seas will swallow us. We'll be boiled alive in our homes and tortured by scarcity. But maybe that will be the millennials plan. Like they plan to get revenge, but because the method they choose is libraries without them even intending to, they end up they sell the sharing, like they try, like we need to use more resources. Millennials but... will be the generation foiled, <laughs> foiled by library socialism's deep. How do we use more resources to do these things? People are like, but really it doesn't make sense to use more resources because we want to build the strongest thing that'll last the longest with the most efficient. So, yeah, sorry, it just it didn't work out. We tried to use so many resources, but those libraries just created so much efficiency that it ended up being degrowth in the end. <laughs> it's kind of a goofy way to think about it, but I do think there is a sense in which that would like in the same way that the current system is structurally geared towards growth, the idea of usufructian commonly held property relations is kind of structurally geared in the opposite way. So the idea of destroying everything to build more libraries like i'm sure you could find a way to do it if you were really dead set on it but i feel like the library form kind of works against that end in itself so i think they're pretty deeply connected on fundamental level good afternoon everybody and welcome back to possibility watch the only news show that travels to various contingent futures in order to interview everyday people about their lives in various future societies today we are talking to an inventor from a library socialist future thank you so much for coming on the show oh thank you for having me is my future the only possible future from the past that you're from it wasn't totally clear to me oh yeah no it's just one of various potential contingent futures oh so this isn't the only future no it's not the only possible future i know that can make some people uncomfortable but uh, let me just say that even the past that i'm from to you is just one potential future from the past from where i am so no need to feel bad about it No, it's not embarrassing. It's totally fine by me. I'm happy to speak to you on your program about, I guess, the future to you. Yeah. uh, To me, the present. So various other people from your library socialist future have told me that there is no money at all in your society. And yet you have invented a new app that helps prevent food spoilage by allowing local people to sort of make it known to those around them that they have food available that might be spoiling soon they're not going to be able to eat it Uh, so it reduces food waste by actually a stunning percentage i've seen studies from your universe show but those two ideas conflict to me how did you invent something without having money to motivate you to do it Yeah, so, you know, I'm not an expert on money, but I kept on getting my food spoiling, the food that I picked up and serving at my house to prepare meals is spoiling. And I was thinking, Mm -hmm. like, what can be done about this? I don't want to let all this food spoil because of my values. Uh, Prefer to not have waste if you can avoid it, uh, if it's perfectly good. And so, yeah, I just thought of this idea. I was like, what if there was some way to connect people in geographic proximity to each other to be like, oh, hey, I accidentally 
picked up too many apples. I can't eat all of them. Do you want to pick them up off me? Or I've got frozen bananas. Or there's a couple days left where these onions are going to be all good. But I think after that, it's not going to work out. And I don't think I'm going to use them, etc. And uh, yeah, people liked it and it worked worked out. But money, I actually don't remember what that is. Well, and let me, I'll give you a quick lesson on it, because uh, I'm honestly still not understanding your answer at all. Is it some sort of... Well, whenever we do something useful in our society, or maybe not whenever, there's certain things that the market deems useful, and when you do one of those things, you get money. So most jobs are done for money, and then you can hand the money in to get food or hey, sorry, clothing, uh, items, good or anything, like luxuries. I'm a, I'm a salt of the earth kind of Yusuf Rakhti and li- library socialist guy. Mm-hmm. This is... Uh, you lost me somewhere in there. Well, it's just you. They're like a token. They're a type of token that you need in society. Right. So, so, it's like so but here's a way to think about it. Basically, we say if you don't do something useful, you don't get any tokens. And then, then you might starve. You might not have a house. You might not get medical care. We kind of hold all those things ransom behind money in order to force people to do things like invent stuff or maybe clean or build things, uh, produce things in a factory. Oh, right. No, yeah. I remember reading about this abusive society and that was to, if I remember right, all of that was to... um, Motivate people. Yeah, and finance state militaries. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. So I've never, I've scored points before, but I've never used tokens that I can remember. But okay, Uh, you said you noticed that food spoiled. But if you're getting all the food you need already, in fact, getting everything you need already, why didn't you just say, oh, well, I don't care about that. I'm lazy and I want to do nothing all the time because all my needs are met. Maybe that's a better way to ask. Yeah, I've never thought that exactly, Um, but it's it's got a ring to it. Yeah, I guess just preventing food spoilage or preventing excess food spoilage when appropriate just felt consistent with the values that I hold that I guess are intrinsically motivating. Does that make sense? Kind of. But isn't it a lot of work to make an app? Yeah, I know how to do it. I've done it before. I'm interested in it. But don't you hate all work all the time? Uh, No, I don't. Sometimes I get a little bit annoyed with when stuff needs to be done, but most of the time it's fine. I do like to take my vacations, though. (laughs) Well, that is one thing I can relate to. I love a vacation, so maybe it goes to show that despite all of our cultural differences between the future and the past, some things stay the same, which is a love of vacations. Oh, yeah, and holidays. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen our Interdependence Day drone show? They're eco-drones. Totally biodegradable. I haven't been yet, but I've been invited to attend this oh, year. Oh, you got to see it. The, the things that they can do with the visual storytelling in the sky these days, it's incredible. Yeah, it's it's mind-blowing. And without a single uh, token? Uh, money, yes. Money, token. money. Yeah. Without a single money. Well, there you have it, folks. That is a library socialist future, one of the many potential futures that uh, this reporter gets to travel to to report back to the past uh, or the present to you listening about. Next month on the show, we are going to be visiting a climate torture hellscape future uh, where everybody is suffering all the time and nobody has what they need and humanity is on the verge of extinction. 
However, they have retained our property relations, so it might be a little bit easier to understand what's going on there. We'll see. I don't know yet. And until next time, always remember that the future is contingent upon the choices that we make in society today. Next question here. Disabled people get ignored, sidelined, and dismissed a lot, and while it should be a given that library socialism would be inclusive of us too, I'd like to see more discussion on what that looks like and how disability movements might intersect with and support the goals of library socialism, and vice versa. What are the specific ways library socialism might help encourage and empower disabled people to feel welcome and valued as participants in any or all aspects of the entire social process, and what might truly accessible urban and rural utopian communities actually look like? That's a really great question with a lot of things to explore there. Yeah, definitely. One sort of like foundational way I look at this is that if we want to have an irreducible minimum for everyone, that includes sort of meeting people's needs. So it's not like everyone needs the same things to get the same level of access to the things they need. People will need different specific ways to do things. And if we want to have a society that meaningfully gives people an irreducible minimum, it has to take that into account. If you look at healthcare as an obvious one, People have different healthcare needs. People get sick in different ways. Men and women have different healthcare needs. Trans people and cis people have different healthcare needs. People with tonsillitis have different healthcare needs than someone with a broken leg, and it's not unfair to treat them for what they specifically have. Yeah, and it's like if you have healthcare needs that requires you go talk to a doctor very regularly versus you only go once a year. It's not unfair that one person gets more doctor than the other person. The goal here is to make sure that everyone gets the health care they need for their particular conditions. The to each and from each to each. The range of disabilities people have can have big impacts on what types of not just health care they need, but all aspects of how we design society, I think, needs to take this principle into account. So if we want to make sure everyone has access to face-to-face -face democratic meetings, that means that all places where these meetings are held have to have ramps to get in. They have to have hallways and doorways wide enough for people with wheelchairs to be able to access them. They need to be designed in such a way that people who can't hear or see can navigate them with ease. Braille signs or interpreters doing sign language, ASL or whatever sign language is your local sign language. There's like a whole array of ways that we need to take into account when we design basically everything from buildings to transportation to the products we're using to make sure that they meet everybody's needs or they meet the needs of the people who need them. So there's not just disabled people, but maybe especially disabled people have a lot of differences in accessibility needs for all these things. And I think when we're looking at designing everything, that's one of the sort of foundational principles of design for looking at a, a library socialist society. I'm glad to return to the democracy question. And accessibility and democracy, I think, is really important. Filling out a long-form ballot of checking a bunch of different boxes of complex questions or a booklet, that might work perfectly well for some people. But for other people, um, and there's a variety of reasons, it could be ability-related or it could be more a matter of personal preference or it could be neurodivergence. Some people aren't going to want to sit down and democratically vote. Maybe they're dyslexic, they have trouble reading it. There's a variety of different 
reasons why one balloting source might not be consistently good for everyone. And I really like the idea of conversational balloting, having a conversation with someone that records their preferences and brings out their preferences through conversation. Developing what that looks like in detail could require some like trial and error. And you want to make sure that people don't unduly influence the people that they're questioning through their framing and stuff like that. And you can figure out ways to avoid that kind of thing. But I think this is a place where that sort of thing could be of particular benefit to people who have certain disabilities, but is also just a benefit to everyone to offer it as an option. Because I don't think the test format or the private ballot, private secret checkbox format is necessarily the epitome of democracy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's kind of a space between face-to-face direct democratic meetings and ballots that brings some elements of both that I think is worth trying. Yeah, there's a variety of ways that you'd want to ensure that people with one disability or another would be able to have equitable access to systems through accommodations that are designed specifically with them in mind. And that process would be an ongoing iterative thing that could change over time based on what people's needs are. I think also when it comes broadly to library socialism and disability justice, it's another area where as I learn more about disability justice after doing the Library Socialism trilogy, I really started to see these natural confluences or places where ideas had been developed in disability justice spaces around complementarity, for example, and in specific, that are immensely, immensely valuable and I want to bring into Library Socialism. There's a natural kind of overlap, I feel, between the desire to not treat the natural world as disposable to not want to treat products as things that are only as useful as they're useful and then they're discarded or destroyed and treating people that way in the marketplace as a key critique of disability justice is the idea that people are only valued by their contributions to the marketplace. They're not valued as free thinking subjectivities, people who are valued for their roles in communities and their wholeness. And it's one of the ways that disabled people are treated as less than under capitalist society as they're judged by how much they can participate in the marketplace. There's some really beautiful key overlaps there. Yeah, I feel like that kind of ideology, it also caused us not to be able to recognize things that are actually there. Like assuming that everybody who isn't able to participate in market capitalism in the very specific way that it's been set up has nothing to offer because of that clouds our ability to see what all different types of people do have to offer because having different disabilities or different ways of needing to access things is always going to give you a different perspective on the world uh, and like every person's individual aspects gives them different perspectives on the world that when we're talking about a democracy become really beneficial because it encourages us to see things in a different way and how all these different ways of making things more accessible for disabled people end up helping everybody. Ramps, wider doorways help everyone. Having subtitles helps everyone. And I think has allowed movies to become less about people clearly projecting every word and giving more naturalistic performances because they know people can just turn on subtitles if they don't understand things. You were mentioning conversational ballots helping everyone making things more accessible for disabled people 
helps make them more accessible for everybody and benefits everyone in society. You mentioned a product only being as useful as it is until you want to throw it out. But one of the problems with the current trash system that we have is that we throw out things that have value all the time. Like they might not have value to us in the moment, but there is literal value in the item that just needs to be repaired or the item that needs to be broken down into component parts and reused as material for new items again. The whole idea of landfills is kind of ridiculous because all of these material resources do have value. Our system has caused us not to be able to recognize the value in so many things. Oh yeah, I think it's also worth mentioning that the praxis of library socialism, which is sharing of things together, the economic and also social benefits to sharing, that is often done at small scales within disabled communities as a survival strategy where disabled people take care of each other. The natural benefit of making a big pot of soup for multiple people versus everyone making their own cup of soup is something that I think that people who live with disability know these sort of things very intimately from their day-to-day lives because places where governments provide wages to people who can't work, they're always completely inadequate with huge chunk of it just being taken up by rent. And so you need to figure out ways to save money and get by. And a lot of that comes from coming together, these sort of like proto-library socialist arrangements. Yeah, working in common with your friends to create a miniature abundance among them makes a lot of sense. One last thing on making disabled people feel welcome uh, and a part of society, an active part of society, is I think just making sure that the education that everyone receives includes understanding about disabled people and neurodivergences and understanding how different people interact with the world. Because a lot of the reasons that people with disabilities don't feel welcomed in society right now is because there's just a lot of misunderstandings about the different ways that people interface with society. And it can cause people to, again, not recognize the value of individuals because they don't understand their particular disability, their particular way that they're approaching things, the way that their neurotype is interacting with the world. So I think broadly, good education about different disabilities will go a long way to making people feel more welcome and giving actual real opportunities for participation. There's a principle in library science, a reader for every book and a book for every reader. And I feel like that notion of complementarity also refers to how society should treat differences, that there's a place for everyone and everyone is welcome and there's something for everyone and there's something that everyone can contribute in a way that is unrivaled by anyone else if we find the mixture between what people want to do and what they can do and what they're good at and there's a community for everyone. Everyone can be esteemed and useful in the world and everyone can have a community. And I think all these things are really profoundly interconnected with the way that disabled people are mistreated by the current society. And by having improvements on those things in the creation of a new society, we can contribute greatly to the liberation of disabled people. And as for how library socialism can be better advocates for disabled people and how library socialism can work with disability justice movements... I would love to hear in the contact form if people have ideas on that, especially people who are disabled, your feedback is valued. We got another question 
How do family heirlooms and sentimental objects work into the concept of library socialism? How does a society like this view and value art? That's a question from Stephanie. Yeah, so the way I think about this is that one of the major differences between the current library system we have now and the proposed library socialist system is that for a lot of items, unlike a book in the current system that you have to return after three weeks or whatever the specific term set by your library, maybe you can renew it if nobody else is asking for it. But like if we're having a library for things like beds, sofas, desks, those are things you're going to take out and keep for as long as you're using them or as long as they remain functional and only return it when you don't need it anymore. So in my mind, for things that have sentimental value to a person that they want to pass on to their children and continue using over the generations, either for whatever the item's intended use is, or just even if partially or totally for the sentimental reasons of keeping your great-great-grandmother's old watch in the family for generations to come, I see there being a value met in that in itself, like meeting the need to have a connection with your previous generations being met through this watch. I don't see any reason why you can't check something out of the library for eight generations or however long this thing gets passed down from parent to child until, you know, eventually probably someone won't want it or they'll start caring less or someone won't have kids or whenever you're not using it anymore, you return it to the library when you're done. So that's how I would view most family heirlooms. So there might be some Restrain, like if you want to keep the last ventilator as like, oh, it's our precious family heirloom. And I know someone needs it. My great grandfather <laughs> survived because of this ventilator. You can't, we want to put it in our family ventilator room. <laughs> yeah, there could be limits like that. But I think our for the most part. Family luxury mega yacht. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, it's just, just so sentimental. Grandpa, me Grandpa Bezos always loved this. We lost yacht. Aunt Miriam last year. She loved the yacht. I don't think we could part with it for now. Even though we're not using it, it's just. If we want to use it sometimes, it's ours. Family heirloom, mega yacht. But yeah, in general, I think heirlooms are totally awesome and chill. Family heirlooms are more in line with library socialism than private property on that thing. They're more incompatible with the abusive idea of private property that you can destroy things just because you own them. But library socialists do want to value and respect material objects, a proportionate and reasonable amount. We want to have healthy ideas about the role of objects in our lives. Yeah, even just making things to last implies that they may last for more generations. Like you might get more mileage out of this intergenerational watch if it's been structured the best possible way to last as long as possible. That kind of respect for objects is, yeah. The main concerns around property that Yusufructian property relations fix is the over-exploitation and destruction of the natural world, waste and hoarding, which is sort of a type of waste, and also the exploitation of workers and people involved in the process of creating products and so on. None of these things really contradict with people holding family heirlooms. All those things could be addressed while keeping a necklace that belonged to their great-great-grandmother and passing it down for generations and generations to a certain reasonable degree. And I think that is a democratic question and like might be uncomfortable for people who hoard things or want the right to hoard things to think about other people having a vote on what they get to keep or not. Oh yeah, right. I don't think you would vote on 
all right, it's time for the trial of whoever. <laughs> Do they have too many things? There would be like cultural guidelines, like what? Are, how many things are you allowed? The library system would know if someone just only checks things out and then, but it shouldn't be the process of taking things away. It should be a process of having conversation with them, helping them figure out why or what things are most important and like sending a social worker out for lack of a better term to figure out why you're using so many things. Yeah, and if someone has taken out a lot of things, they've taken out a lot of jewelry and uh, fancy, I mean, unless they're interfering with other people's use and enjoyment generally by hoarding such a large amount, then it could become a social concern. But even then, it's not super urgent depending on what it is. It would only be urgent if it was something like a ventilator, like if someone took out three ventilators. Yeah, or just like all the backpacks. We took them all. I took all the backpacks out of the library. They knock on his door. He opens it up. It's just like completely surrounded by backpacks. backpacks He's like, like fall out of the door, start tumbling out onto the... What's the issue, sir? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that guy might be the eccentric that needs the job at the backpack factory like maybe he'll just be overjoyed to spend his entire life you know working with backpacks making backpacks as good as possible repairing backpacks yeah if you want to have a big collection of a bunch of different backpacks probably fine but yeah there would probably be some limit but i think also when i think of heirlooms families don't usually have unlimited amounts part of what makes them an heirloom is like there's this one watch this one necklace this one yeah. thing that gets passed down my... kept it up as a butthole during vietnam <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah so to me the question about heirlooms and the question about hoarding and using too much have a natural non-overlap even though people would kind of start to think of them in similar ways we got another question and sort of idea on the comment form that I thought was really interesting from Emo or Imo. I'm not sure. I-M-O is how it's spelled. I'm curious about the modifications of different kinds of objects as they move from person to person or group to group in a library system, especially with a view to personalization and aesthetic value. How far could we go in allowing for modification in various categories of objects? What would the process be? Would there be protected rights? Would there be communal or collective decisions in some cases? My guess is that it would be that most ordinary objects would in time come to be heavily individualized on purpose, even in impacting production processes. For example, t-shirts might be mass produced and distributed in basic colors and shapes only with their first personalization up to local individuals and groups themselves. Among other things, I was thinking of that brand, I can't remember the name, which implemented something like scannable codes on used items, which allowed one to know something about their former owners, thereby giving individualized history, life, and value to the moving object. Perhaps something like this on a more developed utopian scale could also become commonsensical for some objects in our library socialist world. Yeah, I thought that was a really good question and really good idea there. I wanted to bring in that barcode life thing into this discussion about heirlooms yeah it goes with respecting objects and being yeah being able to know their history i think is a really interesting aspect to that and it also kind of ties into the art part of the initial question asking about individualizing objects and the t-shirt thing specifically is what made me think about art because t-shirts are this canvas that people put all different sorts of designs on as a cultural practice that we've developed. And I think for that and for all kinds of art, it would be kind of like 
Yeah, there's this aspect to it of creating an individual thing. And I think if you create a design, you could probably decide whether or not you want to share it with the world. People probably usually would, but I'm imagining somebody like, no, I'm just painting something just for me and I don't want people to make copies. It's just my one painting and I'm keeping it for myself in my room. Yeah, you're allowed to do that. But I think most people would put it out there for people to share and enjoy. And as far as that original canvas thing, that can be an heirloom for you and your family, or it could be given as a gift, etc. There's an interesting dichotomy there between the sort of original heirloom part of an art object and the infinitely replicable aspect of an art object that you can put them up on the internet for all to use. And modifying objects as a stylized thing is kind of part of our art of society that I do agree with the way they asked the question, they proposed answers. I agree basically with everything they said in that, that it would become a thing where a lot of objects would be unique and have their own unique history and their own slight modifications. And there would be an interesting diversity even within this system as, as items are used over time and repaired and altered for different uses. Yeah. It makes me think also of creative commons licensing and how there's all these different scales of it, like use with or without uh, attribution or for profit or not. It's like a partial copyright you can right. assert over your stuff. I feel like there could be room for asserting those moral rights for certain time periods over objects that you have some significant relationship with. Like, for example, I think it's fair to say, I'm going to put my painting into the library of paintings and I request no one paints over it while I'm alive. They can put it in their house or they can leave it in the library. But if you're going to paint over it, you have to make a copy and then paint over the copy of it. I would allow that or I don't allow that while I'm alive. I think when it comes to something as personal as art and the lifetime of the artist, that's pretty uh Yeah, if reasonable. you're going to share my meme, that's cool. That's what memes are for. But at least for the first six months, I want people to credit it to me if they're going to share it. Yeah, don't take out the... <laughs> the watermark or whatever. You could probably even design image files so that they contain artist info and that same type of history even of if there was an iterative meme process of I created the template, I modified it for this... That same history could be attached to digital iterations of art in that way. I was just thinking of like, what would the punishment be for violating these kind of things? Actually, that brings up a really big question that I think we have to talk about in a different Q&A, which is punishment in general and like <laughs> how that connects to library fines and how are the boundaries of the library socialists lending system enforced in a just and humane way. Really interesting question that would be in another episode, so which I'm not going to give any hint about what I think about <laughs> now, just to drive you mad, but use the contact form if you have any specific questions about that. <laughs> but there's something really beautiful about Imo's suggestion of these objects that are produced as being at the start of their life cycle, and that their life cycle could move across generations and evolve it being modified in a way that is accessible and understood to people who care to understand it, like to be able to scan some code that's going to bring you to a database and know, whoa, it's crazy. A hundred years ago, my grandma took this dress out from the dress library and wore it down to the utopian social. <laughs> now I'm wearing it down at the utopian social. 
I'm going to go find the tools that my grandpa used to build my crib and I'm going to use it to build my grandson's crib. Right. Yeah. This is a society that has some real fucking heirloom shit going on. You're like, oh, damn, this tool, when my grandpa used it, it wasn't painted tie-dye, but I guess this guy, Chris Jensen, painted it tie-dye and he asserted a right that no one could paint over it while he's alive and he's still alive. That's an interesting melding of heirlooms into the commons and a way to like still be able to use and access these items that previous generations did while at the same time sharing them with others and being able to keep that continuity through the fact that everything gets returned to the library so other people can use it and through the fact that we keep these histories of the objects. Though I will also mention too, I feel like if you don't want anyone to know you use this snowblower, uh, maybe you could just take it out under anonymous. Like the system would know while it was out that you had it. But I was just imagining some weird privacy concerns of knowing how long you had certain objects out. And like, I feel like there's lots of things where that would be fine and no one would care, but something people might want to keep private. There could be privacy concerns there. I don't want to create a panopticon where everyone knows every object everyone has at all times. That's a good point. One of the ways that's achieved, I think, too, is by decentralizing different types of libraries and having them work in confederation. So like records of when you took out a computer would only be at the computer store and you would have control over how much that information is public or not or under what context. I think a lot of people would say, make my use of tools for my the future generations to be able to find these in terms of what tools I use during my life, after I die especially, my privacy concerns are eliminated personally. Yeah. I think a lot of people would tend in that direction. But then you could also have different layers of it. I think people's control of their own information in the system is really a valuable thing to think about. Like, I think you have a right to take out sex toys and pornography without revealing to your great-great-grandchildren, which, like, oh, this is the nudie mag that my grandpa yeah. used to take out. <laughs> this is his favorite. This is the glass dildo that, yeah. You can opt out during your lifetime, but everyone's defaulted to in on that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> there will probably just be norms around most of these things, what people do and don't do for how long after you die. Yeah, what rights people want to assert over various information or the legacy of... I can imagine someone being like, oh, my grandpa's hammer is tie-dye. This is spitting on my grandpa's memory. He hated tie-dye. He wanted a nice, rugged, manly, non-tie-dye hammer to build the grandchild's crib. But then, you know, what I thought of is your grandpa had the opportunity to assert some sort of moral right over this thing. If it's really important to you, there's some... <laughs> this but hammer I mean, is sentimental that. to me. Right. Even the tie-dye person, you can't do that forever. You said, for my lifetime, it has to stay tie-dyed, but maybe your great-grandchild can put it back to the non-tie-dyed, more masculine hammer of days past. <laughs> if that's what's important to you individually. Honestly, I think tie-dye is masculine. In library socialism, all tools have to be pink and purple, big, bright colors, very gay colors For or like rainbows reasons. on them. They'll all have different pride flags. So we all know that many, many different pride flags, the all tools will be painted in pride flag colors. Yeah, that's fun to think about the different spectrums within the modification of objects that might be permitted or encouraged at different times and how that connects to having a vibrant culture of art. How How is art valued 
now in a way that would be changed in this system? I can't think of anything that we lose. We would lose art that people are only making to make money or to convince people to buy things. There's a whole field of using art towards ends that currently don't exist. There's investment vehicles. Yeah, exactly. People who are making art, not because they genuinely want to, but because they've been hired to convince you to go to Wendy's instead of Burger King. And then there's the whole Burger King team of artists and the whole McDonald's team of artists. It's hard to even predict. There, there would be a type of art that no longer exists, and there would be a whole lot more... I think variety in art, when all these artists are unleashed from having to sell burgers to instead doing whatever they feel is important or meaningful. Yeah. So again, our critics say that library socialism won't value art, but it turns out it's the exact opposite. Library socialism is the only way to really value art. You know, under the current capitalist art valuation system, you have all these sneaky Peters sneaking in who don't even care about art. They're just trying to make a buck and they're diluting the whole art industry. They're making waves across the art community. They're changing the way that people conceptualize art. And they're, yeah, they're becoming the leaders of hierarchies to control other artists and make them do what they want them to do rather than letting the artists be free. You know, in a library socialist society, artists would be free. So I feel like that would make art better. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Library Socialist Scoreboard, where we rack up the totals and put numbers on the board to find out which is better, the current system or Library Socialist Society. First up this episode was holidays. Yeah, holidays. Comparing which is better, current society versus Library Socialist Society. First, I gotta say, I think the current society is falling short. You know, there's not enough paid time off. People just don't have enough of what they need in order to celebrate all the things that need to be celebrated. And there's a really narrow band of allowable holidays. And I think that compared to what we're seeing on the Library Socialist side, a wide open scape of many, many holidays, and many celebrations with all the time off you need to tr really get in there and celebrate clearly seems like library socialism to me. I don't know if you agree. No, yeah, I got to give it to library socialism on mirth and joy alone mm. and holidays. The Inherited Society doesn't even give people their day off on their birthday. The lack of changeability, the universality of it, and the small, small scale of it. I mean, it's far and away library socialism, unambiguous winner. Let's give the point. Let's One point. Up on the board. But don't, you know, all those current society lovers who really want to see their society get some points on the board, don't despair yet. We're just early on in this. There's plenty of chances for them to catch up. Yeah, next up, innovation and motivation. How do these societies stack up? on that crucial question. Now, you know, I wasn't sure which side I was gonna come down on this one, but listening to that report from the future, I really had to come down on the side of the library society. It seemed like motivation there was more natural, not based on starvation, threats, a lot of things to love there. What, what did you think? Yeah, I expected threats to be the far and away winner in terms of practical matters, but it turns out that that's, uh, that's not the case. Human beings have a strong drive across the population. Innovation is happening all the time and people want to feel esteemed and useful. I'm, I'm giving it to library socialism. Turns out people like to work on projects with each other, with others, with their friends. So 
Library socialism pulling an unexpected second point here. Next up on the question of degrowth and the environmental limits of our planet. Well, this is kind of an obvious one. The inherited system overdraws on our natural world. It has more resource throughputs than is sustainable. It's one of the biggest critiques of the current system is that it grows too much. And library socialism was kind of designed to rectify that. So yeah, real layup for library socialism in this one. An easy goal, easy point. Green capitalism, powerless. Green library socialism, materially powerful with a major impact. Counted on the board. It helps when the very basis of your society isn't structured towards the opposite of what you need to get a point. That's all I'll say. And then uh, the question of disability justice. Who are we giving this to? Now, this might be a big upset to some people, but maybe not. Maybe I'm overblowing how many people are really big fans of the current capitalist system. But personally, I think that valuing everybody intrinsically as a part of a complementary whole, a greater social ecology of human and non-human society alike, a global ecological view that values diversity and each part contributing to a greater whole. The amount of justice we're seeing on the library socialism side for disabled people is just off the charts. No, that's literally true. Our charts for measuring disability justice were broken today. It's hard to measure justice when there's so much. Yeah, we, we're gonna need to get our technological wizards to get larger scale justice reading meters for what we picked up today in the Library Socialist universe. That was ex extremely just. Yeah, mere logarithmic scales wasn't enough to contain the line on this graph or chart or whatever. Library Socialism wins on this one, hands down. <laughs> On the question of the value of heirlooms and also the value of modifying and tinkering with the things you own. Maybe this would be a case where one goes to one side and one goes to the other. Yeah, maybe. Is that what you think? I feel like I've been going first a lot. Maybe I'll let you say yours first. Well, on the issue of heirlooms under the current system, they're affixed a monetary price which means family members have an incentive to sell them if they need money, uh, sometimes disrespecting past generations. Under the library socialist system, you don't have that incentive popping up where you can lose family heirlooms between generations, which unfortunately frequently happens. So I'd say if you value heirlooms, you'd probably favor the library socialist society because they're interested in respecting and valuing material objects. When it comes to modability and modification, under the current system, that can interfere with your warranty. Mm. There's a variety of ways that people could be kept from taking their own objects and customizing them to their own benefit. Objects aren't made to last. They're not easily modable. They're built to be replaced every couple years. Whereas under a library socialist system, things are built to last. They're built to be modifiable more easily. And there's a spectrum of modifications to things that are allowable that don't interfere with their function and make the world a more vibrant and interesting place. So I don't think I could have any self-respect if I gave it to the existing system because it's just so out of line and broken fundamentally when it comes to both these questions. Yeah, I was almost embarrassed. Uh, that's kind of why I wanted you to go first because I was like, am I really gonna give another point to the library socialist system on this one? Surely there's some argument I haven't been thinking about for why the current society is better, but no, I gotta say library socialism, better for both of those things, all the reasons you said. 
that means a straight run through yeah. today on the scoreboard. Six zero. Six zero for Library Socialism. Wow. I don't know if anyone was expecting that. Yeah, it brings me no joy to report this. I don't have a horse in this race. I just like to objectively look at the facts. Yeah. And today, it's a runaway win for library socialism. Can it hold up? Tune in next time, because this is an incredible breakaway. We've never seen anything like this as long as we've been doing this show. You know, personally, I'm going to say, you know, this was a great episode for library socialism on the scoreboard, but... Next week, I bet the current system is going to make a comeback. They're going to be way... Well, it has to. Yeah, there's no way it could keep going. Just a big goose egg on one side forever? Nah. Yeah, no. No system is that bad. I mean, when we compared the current system to feudal monarchy, it won almost everything. Yeah, no. So it's strange that it's losing everything. But feudal monarchy didn't have the zero on the board. No, that's true, too. It didn't. Not even in the first episode. And I stand by that ruling. Jesters, it was a better time for jesters. Yeah, compared to the 2022 comedy scene where they were just complaining about social justice the whole time rather than speaking truth to power. Monarchy, the jesters were speaking truth to power more often, and that's just true. Oh yeah, these modern jesters subservient to power makes me sick. I'd give that point to feudal monarchy a thousand times. I am curious to see how library socialism stacks up on its jesters, but that's going to have to wait until next time. You know, the current system needs all the help it can get right now, frankly, folks. And we've got a contact form in the, in the show notes of this episode. If you can help out the current system by naming something that it can win a point over library socialism on, we would be so grateful. We are just so embarrassed for the current system. It doesn't deserve this, that goose egg. Yeah, we don't want to seem like we're being unfair. I Honestly, I was looking for something to reward to the current system, but we just couldn't do it. So we're reaching out to you. We're asking for help. What are things that would be better in the current system? There's got to be something. So there you have it. Another episode of Scoreboard Night in Wrongtown, Library Socialism versus the current system. Currently a shutout, a blowaway shutout for Library Socialism. Can they keep it up? Tune in next time. So what does everyone think? Library socialism, it's a society without trash that the artists are free in. Good idea, bad idea, sound off in the contact form. And feel free to ask any questions about library socialism. We'll be doing another one of these Q&As pretty soon because we got more questions that we really want to talk about that we don't have time for today. Yeah, we got a lot of questions. And also, I really like talking about this. It's been a while since we did episodes on it. And I feel like, yeah, I just have a lot to say. So Definitely look forward to more more of these coming up. If you recognize your question in this episode, thanks for submitting it. You can submit questions anonymously, or if you want us to say your name, you can put the name in the form or specify the usage rights of your name in the library socialist spirit. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, look forward to hearing more from people. And what else do we need to say to how do you end an episode of Uh, head to our Patreon. We don't currently exist in a library socialist society. We currently exist in a capitalist society. So both Sean and I are human beings who have physical needs. And in order to get them met in this society, we need income. So we use Patreon for that. And we reach out to you, the audience, with open hands saying, please put some pennies in our penny jar or maybe $6 bills in our $6 bill jar (laughs) on Patreon. 
and please and thank you. And as thanks, we offer things like bonus episodes and access to episodes early. Discord and Facebook group. Yeah, this episode is produced in partnership, really, with all of our patrons. So yeah, it's always good to mention that. It's always good to thank people who are patrons. It's always good to remind people of how they can help keep the show going. Yeah, and we're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, seriouslywrong.com. That's S-R-S-L-Y-W-R-O-N-G.com. You can follow us on those platforms, post reviews and places. We really appreciate it. Tell your friends about it. If you're into library socialism, help spread the good word. All that stuff is massively, massively appreciated. And it's why we're able to do the show we do and not run ads on the show and just make a good old show. Good old talking and joking, thinking and utopianizing. Yeah. So I guess that's it. Now we just have to say goodbye. Oh, it's always so hard to say goodbye. It is kind of hard to figure out the right words to say goodbye with. Because you're just like, bye. <laughs> we finished what we were saying. This is kind of like, you know, like when someone's at your house and they're leaving and they have their shoes on and they're standing at the door, like talking to you <laughs> more like for a while. That's what we're doing to the audience right now. We're standing in their door. Fingers above the button, ready to go to the next podcast, but yeah, they can't thinking, yet. Yeah, they're... They're just waiting for us to stop. And they're like, there's really still 30 seconds left at this point. Is there going to be something of value shared? Another secret question that they're going to answer? Answer is yes. Someone asked us if we invented library socialism. The answer to that question is sort of, but no, it's made by a bunch of different influences. We put it together in our own unique way for the first time. But since then, as we mentioned earlier in the episode, we're running into things that are very, very in line with our ideas from other sources that may have had unconscious influences or just are co-developed. So yeah, we feel like we discovered it and maybe named it or probably definitely named it more so than we created it. We think a lot of other people have been discovering very similar things. We'd like to assert some limited moral right to be kind of the steward of it in conversation with other people for the time being. But ultimately, our dream for our, our little baby is that they'll go out in the world and become part of whatever the dominant ideological battles of the time are for as long as it takes to save the planet and humanity. So thank you for sticking with us and yeah, uh, goodbye. Uh, we'll, we'll talk bye. to you soon. See you later. <laughs> See you soon.